the, the worst thing that anyone ever says to me is after I give a fireside and, and some mom will come up to me and say, I wish my son could be just like you. I hate that mm. uh, because I don't want anyone to be like me. I just want them to be the best version of themselves. So in, in my book, um, at the very beginning, I say, I give this metaphor of, you know, you wouldn't say, oh, Ben wears glasses. Here, wear his glasses. Mm-hmm. Like you wouldn't give someone my prescription because that would just give them blurry vision and a headache. And I think everyone's life has a unique prescription and we all need different things. And then I end the book um, on the second to last page. I, I just have a paragraph here that, that I'd like to read. So I wrote this. I have one parting request. If you were tempted to give this book to an LGBTQ friend or loved one who has chosen to step away from the church, I would ask you to resist that temptation and pause for a moment. Instead of giving them my story, can you invite them to tell you theirs? And so I don't want to be anyone's poster boy. I don't want to be anyone's model for how to live. You know, I think if anyone wants to know how to live, look to Jesus Christ and his attributes and and, and develop those. Uh, but no one should try to be like Ben Shalati. Everyone should try to be the best version of themselves. This episode of The Cultural Hall has sort of been hanging in the wings for the last little while. I don't know why I held on to it. I don't know why I program things the way that I do, but I know it seems to be working. What with us being 528 episodes into the cultural hall, we must be doing something right. Uh, maybe let's say, here, let's do this. It is Pride Month. Let's say that's why I've hung on to this interview. I'm excited to share it with you. And speaking of sharing, won't you please share the cultural hall with someone. I'm going to give you this challenge, right? Remember this challenge we get in like Elders Quorum or Relief Society, or maybe we get it in Sunday school and then everyone sort of like gets shifty in their seats and they're like, oh, I don't know who to share. The uh, uh, show available in podcast form, a lot easier to share than maybe, you know, your faith tradition or a Book of Mormon. Find someone, if you will, and share them the Cultural Hall. Maybe your favorite episode, maybe this episode, but think about those who you know that might enjoy this. That's what happened with Robert. He recently uh, sent me a message that said, oh yeah, you know, I introduced it to a relative friend of mine. Uh, Her name I think is Paula. And Paula said, yeah, this is my jam. So we would like to be everyone's jam. Share this or other episodes of The Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and I'm excited to have this conversation with Ben Shalati. I like to say your name like uh, Hanratty from uh, that movie with Tom Hanks and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. That Catch great. me if you can. Yeah. When I hear Shalati, I just want to eh. I want to eh the Shalati. That's the right way to do it. Uh, as I know a little bit about you, here's what I know. Uh, I know that you are a gay gentleman. Yeah, I know that you are a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And then I know that you are an author. I know that you are a podcaster. And I also know that you work in the Honor Code office at Brigham Young University. Those are all correct. That seems like a, a lot, and it seems like some of those things, I'm like, how how does that work exactly? So I hope in the time that we have together today, uh, we can get to know that and see how you navigate all those things. So of thanks course. for being here. Yeah, thrilled to be here. Uh, now, I would ask you first, where are you from? Born and raised? I'm from Everett, Washington. Okay. I say that Everett is the Ogden of Washington, because it's a <laughs> half an hour north of the big city, working class, a little smelly, you know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then uh, how'd you make your way to Utah? Yeah, so I've made my way to Utah too many times. Uh-huh. So I have three degrees from BYU that I call my three degrees of glory. Yeah. And Which one is the celestial one? I'd be curious. Oh, my most recent master's degree, of well, course. Congratulations. In social work. Oh. Yeah. I'll go ahead and pick up that that you dropped. Ooh. <laughs> Uh, but every time I, uh, I I would come to BYU and then I would leave and mm-hmm. then I would come back a couple years later and then I would leave and I would come back and I would leave and this time I just stayed. Is family uh, born and raised in the church? 
Uh, I am, but okay. my, my parents are both converts. They joined the church a year after they got married. Okay. And it was not a plan of theirs. They just uh, ran to the missionaries and joined three weeks later. Wow. Yeah. So a real quick conversion, but you, your whole life have always been? Yep. My parents were the golden contact. Oh, really? Yep. Tell me about that. Yeah. So they actually, uh, my aunt and uncle, so my dad's brother and sister-in-law, mm-hmm. they moved to Utah, uh, not being members of the church, to, for my uncle's first job. And so my mom and dad came to visit them, and they went on a tour of Temple Square. Mm, that's and how my, we get you. And my dad was annoyed they couldn't go into the temple like that was the whole reason of going <laughs> and so at the end of the tour they signed the guest book and my uncle was like watch out they'll sick the missionaries on you my dad's like i'll set them straight yeah <laughs> and then they ended up joining the church yeah and yeah. then a year later my aunt and uncle also joined the church yeah. did he end up getting in the temple of course yeah, yeah. see he <laughs> it play- worked he played the long game that's how it, how it works yep uh everett washington lots of members of the church i would presume uh no i would say it's like most big cities in the west oh. like like in my high school there were like 30 to 40 okay. active kids so you know we were, uh, there was a, a group of us, but we definitely weren't the majority, but a sizable minority. So at what point were you like, yeah, I love that girl. She looks great. Oh yeah. Isn't that girl? Wait a minute, guys. I'm, I don't really feel these things. When did that start to come about? For yeah. You? So when you're, when you're a teen in the church, you're told not to study date, to just sure. have fun, to get to know people. So as a teenager, I was able to just like really push aside these feelings. Like this isn't something that's happening. Uh, I was just living in a bunch of denial mm-hmm. and you know, some of my friends would get girlfriends and make out with them. And so I was able to be like, Hey, I'm better than they are because I'm not steady dating. And yeah. <laughs> so, so it was, yeah. So I would say I, I kind of had a big head about being so good mm-hmm. about treating women, women, women with respect back then. Sure. Um, and also this was like the late nineties and early two thousands when I was a teen. And so it wasn't okay even in society to be gay. Yeah. And so there was no way I was. So it wasn't until after my mission, right when I got home that I was like, oh my gosh, the, these feelings I was feeling before haven't gone away. Huh. My mission didn't make them go away. Now I actually have to face them at 21. Tell me where you served. I served in Chihuahua, Mexico. Oh, nice. How was that? Uh, it was great in a lot of ways. I spent half my mission in Juarez, uh-huh. which is one of the worst places I've ever been. Yeah, that, a uh, lot of gangs, right? Isn't that where the people were killed? Yeah, it's a it's a pretty rough and tumble place. Yeah. Um, but wonderful people there, and uh, I love my mission. And ever when I got back, I started teaching Spanish, then taught Spanish for more than a decade. So it really shaped my life in a lot of ways. Uh, teaching it in like high schools, middle schools? Yeah, I taught at the MTC, middle school, high school, college. Yeah, and and... And facing, as you come home, you said that that idea of like, okay, uh, these feelings still here, they obviously mean something. What What is that like? Oh, gosh, it's terrifying. Yeah? Um, Why? Because you don't fit? Because you, you're scared what people are going to receive? Like, what is it? What yeah. Is it? Well, because there's this life path that's laid out for you of, you know, you go on a mission, you get married, you have kids. Mm-hmm. And so there's this fear of, well, what if my life isn't going to be normal? What if people find out about this? Mm-hmm. Because the idea of being, the idea of people thinking I was gay was like the worst fear I had. Mm-hmm. And so, just the idea of people are going to find out, they're going to know. I remember not writing about it in my journal because I thought someday my kids and grandkids would read it. Right. And so, it was just all this like hiding, hiding, hiding. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it was really terrifying. But you knew how you felt. Yeah, and I and I thought I could make it go away. So I did everything I could to, to change, including going to therapy, attending the temple, uh, you know, praying, fasting, like being the best member of the church I could be. And I thought if I could just be like Nephi, who mm-hmm. said, if you go and do, God will prepare the way. So I did my very best to, to go and do so that God would change me. Did you make the deals with God? You know, I never made a deal. Like, mm-hmm. if I do this, then you'll do this. Yeah. I, I just thought that's how it happened. Uh, like, it, that's just the natural outcome. Like, I don't need to say it. Isn't this just how this goes? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And it wasn't until I was 23 when I was like, I've been home for two years for my mission. I'm mm-hmm. supposed to be married now, mm-hmm. and I'm not even close to having a girlfriend. Maybe these feelings aren't going to go away. Was, and that's when I started to really get into like a bad place. 
Now, when you say bad place, tell me what you mean. So I was never actively suicidal, uh-huh. um, but I experienced what I would call passive suicidality or suicidal ideation where I, like if I had gotten cancer, uh-huh. I would have been thrilled. Like if I could have gotten some terminal illness, I, I just didn't want to live anymore. And you know, I was taught very explicitly that, that feelings of same-sex attraction were not uh, part of the, my premortal um, experience and they wouldn't be part of my postmortal experience either. Mm-hmm. And it was just a trial and affliction and a temptation of this life. Mm-hmm. And so that led to me just wishing I could be dead. I thought, well, I'd rather be dead and straight than alive and gay. Mm-hmm. And so those teachings really put me in, in, a, in a really bad place. Yeah. Stop for a second. And I want you to I want you to reiterate that again, because that to me now with our 2021 eyes just seems so I don't want to say crazy, but like this idea that you would rather be dead than straight and gay. I, I can't even wrap my head around that. Yeah. So I. Or then I, alive and gay. Did I say straight and gay? <laughs> I don't know what I said. You can be both straight yes. and gay. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, but as, as I looked forward to life, it just seemed like it was just going to be miserable. Yeah. You know, so I couldn't marry a woman. So if I was going to be single, then people, was, people were going to know I was gay. It just the future just seemed so bleak. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that I just wouldn't have to have a future, I could just like die in some heroic way mm-hmm. and just move on to the next life. That seemed like the better option to me. Yeah. And so, you know, the teachings that, that this was a trial, an inclination, a temptation were just so damaging to me. And, you know, that kind of stuff is still taught today. Sure. And, you know, I wish we could move on from that. So uh, you're 23. Uh, as we uh, dial this back a little bit, you've been home a couple of years. You're saying, eh, boy, these these feelings are not going away. You start going to therapy mm-hmm. uh, as you are engaging in that. What is that like? I would imagine some therapists are like, listen, pal, you're gay. It's fine. Woo! And other people would be like, I'm not sure. Maybe this is a a struggle. Maybe it is this is trial. Yeah. Well, so when I went to therapy, I went to the BYU Counseling Center. And (laughs) the Counseling Center at BYU has changed a lot since then. Mm -hmm. And and the therapist I saw was also very old at the time. This was 2008. So it's been a while. Um, And, you know, you have to fill out all these forms. And so I'd spend like half an hour filling out these forms, these questionnaires. In the end, it's like, why are you here? (laughs) And I wrote, I experienced same-sex attraction and I want to change those feelings, something like that. Mm -hmm. So I get into his office and he looks at the form and just kind of glances at it and says, oh, that's easy to change, and then just sets it aside really nonchalantly. <laughs> and then he did like a regular intake, you know, asking about, you know, my mental health mm-hmm. and my history. And and then he said, well, in, in the next session, we're really going to dig into this. Mm-hmm. And so I went back a week later, and he, I barely said anything the entire 50 minutes. Like, I thought therapy was, oh, and how does that make you feel? So that's mm-hmm. what I was expecting. But I just sat there the whole time while he talked at me mm-hmm. and just walked through all the beautiful parts of a man's body, all the beautiful parts of a woman's body, and told me that just trying to make it seem normal that and, and natural that I was could be attracted to either kind of body. Mm-hmm. And then he said, so whenever you're attracted to a woman's body, just or, or, or when, whenever you get aroused, just think of the beautiful parts of, of a woman's body, and that mm-hmm. will change you. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I'm thinking, you know, I'm taking some psychology classes. I'm like, well, he's trying to get, get me to condition myself to be attracted to women. But that's not how I was attracted to men. Like, this this is something that's just kind of internal. Like, this, just, yeah. this wasn't something I was taught. It just kind of happened. And I just felt so uncomfortable in that session. So I, I made a follow-up appointment because I was too embarrassed to, to cancel. And then I called the office uh, a few hours later and canceled the appointment and never went back. So I just, mm. went, I just went those two times. Yeah. that That's cringy. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was pretty terrible. And I was dating a woman at the time mm-hmm. who was just like really hoping that that would work. And I was hoping it would work. And so it was just terribly disappointing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, with the effort to to still date a woman, right? You have these feelings on the inside, it, but but that you're trying to express them differently outwardly. How how did that work? 
<laughs> well, it didn't. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> well yes. Um, I mean, I'm 37 now and still single. Yeah. Um, and imagine I'll be that way for a while. Sure. Um, but it was a lot of, you know, I would develop these really wonderful friendships with mm-hmm. women mm-hmm. and we would be just really close and they would be my best friends. Uh, but I never understood why I was supposed to hold their hand or kiss them. Mm-hmm. And all those things just made me feel really uncomfortable. And so they would want to move forward physically in the relationship. And it would just, every part of that would just make me feel so uncomfortable and it was just so unnatural. And so it was this tough thing where I would, girls would like me and I would like them as a friend and I would love spending time with them, but then I just couldn't be who they needed me to be. Mm-hmm. But what's being asked of you is that you would find one of them and, you know, be sealed in the temple and, and that that's the path. So at what point did you just go, that, I, that is not going to be what happens for me? Yeah, uh, that wasn't until I was like 29. Wow. Yeah, I, I spent uh, my whole 20s trying to marry a woman. And I, I've spent, I, I've been on 27 blind dates with women mm-hmm. in my 20s. And I think I went out with 100 unique women. I spent thousands of dollars and many hundreds <laughs> of hours trying to get married. And I was very unsuccessful at it. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I just, that, that w- there was no other path. Like that was the only way to live. I had to marry a woman. Like that was that was the point of life. And so I just couldn't envision that life could be different than being married to a woman because that was the only thing that was ever taught to me. As you look back on that time, your 20s, the duration of your 20s and, you know, trying to do that, do you consider that to be a waste of your time or do you consider that to be just learning to be who you are now today? You know, not at all. Um, I, 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 in, in, in my book, I talk about um, one, one of the women I dated and she's actually the only woman I kissed and we just were the best of friends and got along super well and and she's happily married to someone else. I'm like so thrilled for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was thinking about coming out publicly, uh, this was years after we had broken up, and we we'd remained, you know, peripheral friends. And and she, so I, I like had written this essay that I was thinking about using as my coming out essay, and I sent it to her, and she read it, and had all this great feedback, and then she said, you know, Ben, who knows if you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Hmm. And I was so afraid to come out, and that like simple like quoting that story from Esther just like gave me the courage, like no, I can do this. Like maybe there's something good that I can do by sharing my story. Mm. And so you know, was it a waste? Like no, I built these beautiful relationships with people, and even though they they didn't end up being relationships that became sealed for eternity, they were still relationships that shaped me, and even years later, uh, helped me have the courage I needed to do uh, what I felt was right. Mm. The coming out experience, I think, for anyone can be traumatic. Certainly, it's nerve-wracking, right? Because you worry about how people receive uh, receive you. And and and, um, and I would be then curious as to coming out as a Latter-day Saint, as gay, what that experience was like, both the positive uh, experiences, and I would be curious because I think we can learn from some of the negative experiences that occurred with that. Yeah, I've had almost universally positive experiences. Great. So I, I first came out to my two best friends when I was 23 years old. I was mm-hmm. attending BYU as an undergrad, and I just got to a point where I just like couldn't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And you know, we, when we see uh, like depictions of the iron rod, it's usually at like waist level. Mm-hmm. And to me, it felt like the iron rod was 10 feet in the air, and I was just like <laughs> dangling from it, just like trying to hold on, but my hands hurt and my arms ached. I just needed someone to like help hold me up. Mm-hmm. And so I came out to my two best friends when we were on a walk in Qantas Park, just east of BYU, uh, just because I couldn't do it anymore. Like I was, I was worn out and I just needed some help. Mm-hmm. And so I told them out of like, sh- like sheer necessity. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they both responded with like, like wonderful love and kindness. And, and uh, they were my friends, Mitch and Craig, and Mitch was my best friend from high school. And Mitch talked the most at first and, and he just like told me I could talk to him about it whenever I wanted to. We asked some good questions. And Craig was also there and Craig was my roommate at the time. And he wasn't saying much. And so I finally said, 
Craig, I understand if you don't want to be my roommate anymore. Mm -hmm. And he said, why wouldn't I want to be your roommate? You're the same person you've always been. Mm -hmm. And so that for me was the beginning of my healing when I could tell these people this thing about me that I hated and they were, they would say, no, this, like this doesn't change anything. Like Mm -hmm. we're we're here for you no matter what. And then over the years I came out to, you know, family and, and close friends and, and I didn't come out publicly until I was 30. And that was a, that was a scary thing because I'm the only Ben Shalati on the internet, so I'm really <laughs> Googleable. Yeah. And so my big fear was if I put this out there, I can't take it back. Um, but I just felt so inspired to do that. So I ended up sharing that essay that I'd written that I'd shared with this this uh, former girlfriend of mine. And uh, and the response was like immediate and wonderful, like mm. people just expressing their, their love and kindness for me. Um, I would say the worst things that have happened are people that don't actually know me, mm-hmm. who tell me all kinds of things that aren't true and just really judge me harshly. But, you know, the Internet is, can be a mean place. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, everyone has been really good. I'd say that the worst experiences I've had are just um, neutral experiences, not negative experiences, where I'll come out to someone and they'll make it about themselves. And like how, for people that may be worried, oh, am I being supportive in the right way? What does it sound like if they make it about themselves? Yeah. So I, I came out to, to one friend and uh, she just she then told me, she's like, well, I kind of had a crush on you. And I always have crushes on gay guys. Like, what is wrong with me? Like, why do I always have crushes on gay guys? And I'm like, well, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sorry. Let me yeah. comfort you. Yeah. So, so um, and, and then one time I came out to, to a group of friends and they just kind of had this weird discussion about like why people need to come out and like, well, like we're straight. Like, do we need to tell people we're straight? Right. And I was like, why are we having this conversation now? Like I'm just spilling my guts to you. Right. Um, but, but no one was, or, or people say things like, well, you know, there are a lot of people who have addictions and trials and, <laughs> and, and so like comparing my orientation to like an addiction, that's not helpful. But, yeah. but to me, it was never like a negative thing. They're just trying to, to piece together something that doesn't fit into their paradigm. And then family and siblings. What was that like? Do you have siblings? I don't even know that you yeah, I'm not. the youngest of three. Okay. They were all great. I came out to my, my sister's two years older than me and she's never been married. Mm-hmm. And so I was like 25 and she was 27 and she was complaining about being single. And, and I was just really annoyed. I was like, well, you think you've got a hard, well, I'm gay. Mm-hmm. And she was really kind, even though I came out in a way that was kind of out of frustration. Right. And then the next day she wrote me this like beautiful letter about how much she loved me and cared about me. And she said, Ben, if you never get married, like, I hope you'll buy a house next to me so we can be close forever. <laughs> like no matter what you choose. And, you know, uh, my, my siblings were, were, were the same that like you know no matter what you choose like we're here for you and you know a lot of people are excluded from their families sure or or at least there's some distance in their family my family was not like that at all um just about two years after i came out to to one of my brothers and 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 my sister-in-law uh they were redoing their will and they asked if i would be the guardian for their their kids like if, if they died and so you know that that's my family like like my orientation you know, it didn't change how they saw me. Like they still view me as someone who is, is capable and able and, and would be the best to raise their kids. Hmm. I had a, a recent experience where uh, someone whom I work with uh, came out to me. And I, a, as that happened, I thought, you know, I have never in my entire life, 40 years old, I've never had anyone come out to me before. And the fact that this individual came to me and said, hey, you know what? I want you to know that I'm gay. And then, you know, I was like, well, I love you. You're not any different. You know, if there's anything I can ever do, if I can, you know, be a support or an advocate, whatever the thing is. Right. Like, I feel like I just I wanted to show that love. And then as I was driving away from that conversation, I was like, wow, I I have never had that experience before and the amount of trust that that ha- individual had in me to be able to come out and and know that it would be a safe place I was I was honored. It was a bizarre thing that going into it, I don't know that I would have ever thought about it, but honored to have been trusted to have that conversation. 
Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people might have missed this, um, but in my book, I, I dedicated my book to Mitch and Craig, the first people I came out to. Mm. And that was that was a very like spiritually prompted thing. I, I felt like that was the right thing to do. And I wanted anyone who read my book to know like when when you are someone that someone trusts with this information about their life, when they, when they share their, their orientation or gender identity with you, that is a sacred thing. Mm. And, you know, I was 23 when that happened. This is it's 14 years later, and it's a still it's still a meaningful thing for me, like how they responded and, and that I was able to trust them that much. And so if someone comes out to you, like, that's such a sacred, special thing. I want to take a break for a second. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, Honor Code, and I want to talk about your book, and I want to talk about your podcast. We'll hit up all those, maybe not all of them. We've got plenty of time. Talking with Ben Shalati, we'll do that coming back in the second block of the Cultural Hall. A busy full summer from Best DJ in Utah. Go to bestdjinutah.com. Why, that is me, Richie T, and I would love to be able to play music at your upcoming wedding, or maybe you're having a company party, or maybe you're thinking already for the holiday party. Whatever it is that's on your schedule, you should get the number one highest rated DJ for the state of Utah. Now, I know you're thinking, I don't even live in Utah, Richie. Would you ever do an event in Washington State? Oh, I've already done that before. Would you ever do an event in California? Been there too. How about Louisiana? Uh Uh-huh. Texas? Yes point is, uh, you know, you you throw shekels my way, I'll come to wherever you're at. We could even combine it and make it an episode of the Cultural Hall. Mind blown. If you are in need of a DJ at all or someone in your family is getting married, would like to be able to talk to me, I would love to be able to talk to them. It's bestdjinutah.com. Hi friends, Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. I get a lot of emails from people all the time. Here's one. Dear Dan, I hear your talk about a lifetime service guarantee. Free? Really? Please help me avoid all your fine print and be honest about what free means. You understand that we should be very wary of a free offer? Signed, Skeptical. Hi, Skeptical. I remember 22 years ago when we started PC Laptops and our lifetime service guarantee, people thought it was too good to be true. Well, you know, after a decade, people started believing me a little bit. But you know, it's been 22 years of having the privilege to serve our friends and neighbors like you. Our lifetime service guarantee has become the most trusted warranty in the industry. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop computer for $7.99 with a lifetime warranty. Check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. Here's to seeing you soon, skeptical. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, when I hear the name Ben Shalati, again, I just want to hard A that Shalati. Um, As you should. uh, But I also think Honor Code Office, and I immediately go, wait a minute. Or I at least have questions just about the Honor Code Office in general. And then knowing that you are a gay gentleman that works for the Honor Code Office, I I quickly go, how about about that? I wonder what that's like. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm hoping that we can kind of explore into that. For people who may not be familiar with what the Honor Code Office even is, what is it? So the Honor Code Office is a student conduct office at BYU. And every university has a student conduct office. Every university has a code of conduct. And the Honor Code Office at BYU uh, maintains the the code of conduct. So if if students are violating the code of conduct in an egregious way, then, then we meet with them and make sure that they can get to a place where they're following the standards of the university. Now, you say every university has that. Is that all private universities or all universities? All universities, yeah. So um, the honor code, specifically with BYU, kind of takes that standard of behavior at a regular university to the nth level. What are most of the things that people get 
what called on the honor code or whatever for yeah i would say the majority of cases are academic dishonesty really so, so cheating plagiarism those kinds of things okay mm-hmm. but there are those there there are those other things <laughs> uh and i would be curious um within the last couple of years when the uh, church handbook was sort of updated and then it, there was sort of some obscurity within the language that made it sound like um the the interaction between lgbtq um uh, students and their partners or their relationship that they had, um, that those things would sort of be permissible on campus. Uh, that lasted for about two weeks, and then it was quickly sort of revised. Is that something that the Honor Code Office deals with as well? Uh, yes. So we, we deal with any violations of the Honor Code. Um, we we receive very few reports about uh, same-sex romantic behavior. Mm. Uh, when someone, when we, were, we we don't go looking for reports, reports have to come to us. Mm-hmm. And people also can't make anonymous reports. Mm. And so typically people are, you know, they and you can't just make a report, you have to have, you have, to have some kind of evidence. Mm-hmm. And so um, typically people don't want to turn in their friends or, or they don't have any kind of evidence that same-sex romantic behavior is happening. And, and a lot of students don't self-report for that kind of thing. And a lot of our reports uh, of honor code violations are self-reports. Hmm. And so we receive very few uh, of those cases a year. Yeah, it's funny. When we hear the honor code, I think a lot of people think of it's the organization where if you want to get back at someone and snitch on them, you call the honor code office. But to know, first of all, that it can't be anonymous, I think that's significant. And that, too, there has to be some sort of evidence about it. I, I, I was unaware that, that that could be. Yeah. And also, we view what we're doing as, as an educational process, mm-hmm. not as a punitive process. And so, you know, if students want to remain at the university, we want them here. Right. Um, unfortunately, I, this happens all the time. I have a student who gets caught cheating mm-hmm. and they come into my office and they think they're going to get expelled for cheating. Right. And that's not what's going to happen. Um, and so a lot of like the in, in my opening monologue that I give to all my students, uh-huh. I, I explain to them, you know, what the possible outcome is probably going to be. And and uh, it's almost never expulsion. Like it takes a lot to get expelled from the university. And uh, almost every time someone gets expelled from BYU, it's for a, a reason that would get them expelled from any university. Does the honor code office do this thing that the church does that I just hate, let me explain, um, where it's like, hey, you've got a meeting with the honor code office, and then they don't tell you why, and they don't give you details, and then it's always like a week out, so for that week you just sort of stress in anxiety? No, when you get a letter, uh, you know why you're coming in. Okay, Mm -hmm. okay. You know what I'm talking about, though, right? Where it's like the bishop is like, hey, I want to meet with you on Sunday, and you're like, "Uh, can you tell me why? Oh, we'll talk about it on Sunday. No, tell me now. My anxiety is gone. Please meet with me uh, on a on a level um, of ex- like expulsions versus meetings. How how uh, rare would you say someone gets expelled with an honor code violation? Yeah, so I can't remember the exact stats, um, but back in two thousand, what when was it nineteen? Mm-hmm. Kevin Utt, the honor code director, uh, was interviewed by BOU magazine. I think that's probably the best way to the best place to go look for those statistics. I think it was like there were twelve suspensions that oh, year. Oh wow! Oh wow! And uh, we've had years with no expulsions. Uh, so that's really rare. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, kind of breaking through some of these myths uh, as far as the honor code goes. How many people work in the honor code office? There, well, there are uh, four honor code administrators like And that's me. what you are. Okay. Uh-huh. And then there's the assistant director and the director. And we have a full-time secretary and a part-time secretary. So there and, are eight of us. And there was also some shrouded kind of a mystery with the BYU police a couple of years ago in the honor code office and the police reporting to the office and the office to the police. 
they were they decided that the uh, BYU Police de- Department wouldn't lose their credentialism. They're still able to be police. Has there still been further interaction between those two agencies, or are they pretty separate? Yeah, so uh, we don't really interact with 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 BYU Police. Like they're not out snitching on people. Yeah, um, all universities. But you know that's the perception. Yeah, and, yeah, and and all that stuff that happened with the with the police, like that happened long before I was hired. Yeah, uh, I've only been working there for a year and a half. Um, but uh, all universities have uh, th- their dean of students office typically will check local booking records to mm. see if a, st- a student has been arrested. Oh, and that's a standard practice among universities. And so, that's public information as well. So. Yep. Uh-huh. So we only take information that's public. Hmm. Hmm. Do you like working in the honor code office? I really do like it. How you come? Know, um, you know, I, I'm I have a master's in social work, so I'm trained to be a therapist. And you know, when students come in, this is the worst part of their their academic career. And so just being someone who, who can who can be kind and also, you know, hold that emotion and, and that fear with them and hopefully dispel it. Um, I, I really enjoy doing that. And also, you know, if a student uh, gets put on probation or or gets or gets suspended, you know, I work with those students for multiple months until they they return to good honor code standing. So it's it's really wonderful to to build those kinds of relationships with students. Pretty rewarding when you see them come back or get kind of full fellowship. Not necessarily they were excommunicated or anything like that, but being able to kind of. Mm-hmm. Reinvite them back yeah, to the university. It's really wonderful, and and honestly, the the staff I work with is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Kevin, who, who's the director, he spent his whole academic career uh, outside of BYU, and in his professional career, and so he got hired back in I don't know 2017, 2018, uh, and then when, when he became director, the honor code office. Uh, he, he said, well, this is the student conduct office. We're going to treat it like any other student conduct office at any other university. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he's a, he's a real poly, policy-oriented guy and, and someone who just has lots of you know love and compassion. And he's willing to talk to any student who has any question. And uh, because people know me, because uh, I'm fairly well known in the LGBTQ Larry Saint world, mm-hmm. people will come in and have questions. And they'll talk to me and I'll invite Kevin in. And he loves having those conversations. And he always asks me, well, what could I do better? You know, did I say anything that I shouldn't? have. Mm-hmm. And so he wants to make sure that 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 students understand what's expected and he's really willing to answer any question that they have. You bring up an interesting point and I would be curious how you feel about this um, that people within the LGBTQ community and the LDS church community uh, look to you. Not specifically just you, but there are various individuals like yourself, and so I'll name a few, right? We think of Charlie Bird, who was the BYU mascot for a few years. He's written a book as well. Dennis Schleicher, who's another guy, who he's a convert and he's gay. Uh, Ty Mansfield, who's gay, but has married a woman and made a life of it as far as that goes. There are these individuals who are gay within the church, and we sort of look at, at those examples and go, see, Ben can do it. The amount of pressure that that probably puts on you, do you feel it? Do you like it? Does it is it something that you just wish didn't exist? The the worst thing that anyone ever says to me is after I give a fireside and and some mom will come up to me and say, "I wish my son could be just like you." Mm. I hate that mm. uh, because I don't want anyone to be like me. I just want them to be the best version of themselves. So in in my book, um at the very beginning I say, I give this metaphor of, you know, you wouldn't say Oh, Ben wears glasses. Here, wear his glasses. Mm-hmm. Like you wouldn't give someone my prescription because that would just give them blurry vision and a headache. And I think everyone's life has a unique prescription, and we all need different things. And then I end the book um, on the second to last page. I, I just have a paragraph here that that I'd like to read. Please. So I wrote this. Um, I have one parting request. If you were tempted to give this book to an LGBTQ friend or loved one who has chosen to step away from the church, I would ask you to resist that temptation and pause for a moment. 
instead of giving them my story, can you invite them to tell you theirs? Mm. And so I don't want to be anyone's poster boy. I don't want to be anyone's model for how to live. You know, I think if anyone wants to know how to live, look to Jesus Christ and his attributes and 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 develop those. Uh, but no one should try to be like Ben Shalati. Everyone should try to be the best version of themselves. The book, A Walk in My Shoes, is just a series of questions, like the most frequently asked questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, give me an idea of one that you address within the book. Yeah. So um, I, the, the first question is, were you born gay? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a common question that people ask. People have very strong opinion, opinions about. And so I, I address that. You know, people often ask me, like, like, how are you happy in the church single? Like, how do you move forward as a, as a single person? So that, that's a question I address, too. Yeah. And so um, I just made a list of, uh, like, like, the first six or seven questions are, like, these, like, these common questions, like, you know, what does it mean to be gay? And then the last set are just, you know, how do you, how do you make the church work as a gay person, basically? And I guess maybe I want to dive into at least one of those. So let me take the one that I feel like most people would be interested in. Um, the idea you've mentioned a couple times about being single, and at least as far as when we're recording this right now, the idea that you could be married to a man doesn't allow, you're not allowed to do that within the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As far as I know that, they withdraw membership if you do that. So th- this idea of living a life unmarried, you know, single, how, how how do you come to grips with that? Yeah, just to clarify one thing you said. Okay. So there are a lot of people in same-sex marriages who have maintained their membership records okay, or ma- ma- maintained their, their, their membership in the church. So it, it really depends. Okay, okay, sorry. Yeah. I Yeah. Um, but you know how how do I make it work? Uh, I'm really grateful for this most recent general conference in April 2021, uh, where we had a, a few talks about you know the importance of single people and how yeah. we can we can contribute. And that's not rhetoric we've heard a lot in the past. And I'm I'm glad that that President Ballard is is making that more of of, of something that's ha- that that we're talking about because you know half of adult members in the church, more than half, are single, divorced, or widowed. Mm-hmm. And and so we're a sizable part of the, of the population. Uh, what I've had to do is just kind of uh, reframe like what life is about. Like for me, it was all about like getting married and having kids. And when that when that ideal didn't happen for me, I had to think, well, what what can I do? Mm-hmm. Like like what is my life supposed to look like? And so I've started to see being single not as a deficit, but as a as actually a strength. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of my favorite chapters in in the New Testament is is First First Corinthians twelve, where Paul talks about the body of Christ, mm-hmm. and he says, you know, we're made differently on purpose, like we aren't all supposed to be hands or feet or eyes or ears. Like we are made different on purpose and that way we make the body stronger. And I look at the ways that as a single person, I'm able to contribute in ways that I couldn't if I were married and single. And uh, one of the ways I illustrate this is when I was living in in Tucson, uh, Arizona, when I was doing my PhD down there, I, I met this woman in my ward who I was asked to give a ride to who was coming back to church and she was in her fifties and and very lonely, and and, and she also uh, was anorexic. And she told me this when I when I met her, and and she just told me how lonely she was. Mm. And I said, "Well, do you want to get lunch this week?" And she said, "I would love to." So we 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 got lunch mm-hmm. on, on a Wednesday, and and then uh, as we were talking, she said, "Are you a writer?" And I said, <laughs> "Not really. I mean, I write for school, but I'm not a writer." She said, "Well, I've been wanting to write my life story. Would you write it?" And I was like, wow. I was like, sure. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> yeah. So we went out to lunch once a week uh, for the next year and a half, like while I was in Tucson. Wow. And uh, we only worked on our story for about six months, but she would tell, we would eat, then she would tell me stories, and I would just type them up on, on my laptop. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a single, like I was in my early 30s and I, and I was single, you know, had I lived a quote unquote normal life, I would have been married with kids. And I wouldn't have had time or money sure. to, to do that. But as a single person, I had time to spend three hours at lunch on a Wednesday with this woman who was lonely. 
lonely and wanted to record her life story. And she became one of the most uh, important relationships I, I had in Tucson. And I got to know her, her son, her teenage son really well um, as well. And then uh, when I when I moved away, shortly after I moved away and moved up to Utah, uh, she, she passed away not long mm. after that. And her son texted me as he was going through her things and he found this life story of hers that, that we had written together. Mm. And he just told me how meaningful it was that, that he had these stories of his mom that he didn't know. And so, you know, is, is it is being am I missing something in my life because I'm single? Like, yes, of course. Like, I don't get to have, you know, this marital relationship and, and this family that I expected I would have. But instead, I get these other things that are beautiful that I wouldn't get to have if I were married. I appreciate you putting it in the perspective that, you know, being your, your singleness is not a deficit and that you can, you know, that whether it's the phrase you grow where you're planted or, you know, mm-hmm. wh- whatever those things are, you there is value for everyone. And I appreciate that because I think that applies to the experience not LGBTQ plus, right? For single people that are listening, like there's so much value. I appreciated that within this last conference as well. And it's not like, a, listen, you have value too, right? That that wasn't the statement that I feel. It's that we all have value. Different values was expressed. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I would then also uh, be curious to, to wonder, as you have looked back on, you came out in 2000... I came out. Well, I came out to my friends at first when I, in 2007. Okay. But I came out publicly in January of 2015. Okay. So this is relatively recent in the in the time from coming out uh, to your friends back in 2007, then publicly in 2015 to where we are in 2021. What do you feel like has changed within the church and its attitudes towards LGBTQ plus? Yeah. So. I, I've kind of experienced three different ways that people have viewed homosexuality in the time I've been alive. Okay. Uh, when I was a when I was a kid, you know, homosexuals were to be feared. You know, homosexuals were perverts that were making a choice, that were deviant, and that were not to be welcomed in our communities. Right. And then we kind of moved on to this phase where we were to be pitied. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know, uh, I, I think President Hinckley said once in an interview that you know we don't know where this problem came from. Like, we don't know why they're gay, but we know they have a problem. Mm. And so our orientation was viewed as a problem. We were to be loved, but not to be talked about. Mm. And now we're moving to this, in, into this phase, uh, and I, we're definitely not there yet, but I, I can see it happening in in, in in my life where, you know, it, it says in, in 1 Corinthians 12, to quote that again, that, that, uh, that we give the members of the body who, who seem to be less, less honorable, the most honor. Hmm. And I'm starting to feel where I, people are honoring me for the unique contributions that I can make. Hmm. And I, I was called to be on my stake high council uh, a year and a half ago. And when I when I was called, my stake president said, "Ben, I want you know we're not calling you to be the gay high counselor." <laughs> but but Al- although, could you imagine that in in the program, right? And yeah. Flipping through the program on Sunday, gay high counselor. All right, I'm there. Let's with, do it. with a rainbow emoji after. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but but then he said, "But you can talk about it as little or as much as you want." Hmm. And you know, my experiences with, with my orientation have really shaped my faith mm-hmm. and really taught me so much about the atonement of Jesus Christ and you know like, like what faith and hope and charity looks like. And so if I divorce my experience from those things I've learned, then you're not going to get it. And so I, what I've learned is, you know, the the main way that I bear my testimony now is by talking about my orientation. Hmm. And so, and, and I see people start to, you know, honor that and that experience. And I see that ha- starting to happen in other people's lives as well. And so I hope we can move to a place where, you know, having an openly gay person in a congregation isn't a novelty anymore, but right. it's just a regular thing because there are LGBTQ plus people in every congregation. Absolutely. And uh, and I think we're starting to move to a place where it's going to be okay for more people to be out and open. I want to take another break, and when we come. 
come back, I want to talk more about your podcast, and then we'll wrap it out with asking you the three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. We'll do that coming back in the third block. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, if you have not yet done so, go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. It's where you get to be a part of the secret but not sacred Facebook group, and you can become a Patreon saint. You get to see videos of all the interviews that we do and just have nerdy chatter about each of the episodes. Uh, you can also make recommendations there as well. It's patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. Uh, ben. So I would be curious, we've sort of looked in the past for you, you know, seeing where things have been from where you came out uh, to your friends, then publicly, and to now where you are working um, in writing and podcasting and all that. What do you, as you look toward the future, what do you anticipate? Yeah, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know either, so that's a fair <laughs> response. You know, all the things I love in my life that I really care about, five years ago I wouldn't have imagined doing. Really? Yeah. And so, well, not like all the things. Like I, of course, imagined I'd have like my parents and siblings that I love sure. and care about. But but like as I look at forward on my like future projects, like I have no idea. I'm just going to see what options are available to me in the future and just take the best ones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the podcast I'm doing right now with my friend Charlie, Questions from the Closet, that's not – I don't imagine that being a long-term project. I Tell people we'll, what that is in case they aren't familiar. Yeah. So um, each episode we address a question that we get asked and then we have a guest on to discuss the question with us. And this really grew from – um, an experience I had at BYU where I was asked to be part of a, a reconciling faith and sexuality panel mm-hmm. and BYU students submitted 19 questions about the LGBTQ experience and we answered like one or two of them mm-hmm. and then afterwards we had this list and one of my friends messaged me and she said Ben I would love to go to these events but I never can because they're in the evening and sure. I've got kids and she said, she said could you just do a podcast where you discuss questions uh, like a, as a panel and I was like I don't want to do that I don't know, I don't know how to run a podcast <laughs> And uh, then I was like, shoot, that's a good idea. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we started the podcast just a little over a year ago. Um, and so I imagine it being maybe a two, three year project. And mm-hmm. once we run out of questions, I want to be done. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't know. I've, I've been saying for a while that I'll give like LGBTQ work like my 30s and in my 40s, I want to do something else. But I don't know what that's going to be. How did the book come about? Did Deseret Book come to you and say, hey, do a book? Or did you say, I've got these questions that I answered. <laughs> no. Yeah, but we do this as a book. I approached them begging. So they did not approach me. Oh, no. Uh, no, okay. I, wrote, I wrote them a proposal. And it was at the same time they were working on Charlie Bird's book with him. So mm-hmm. I wrote them a proposal and, uh, you know, this, this question-based focus. And and uh, this was in the summer of 2019. And they said, well, we're, we're busy now with another project. We <laughs> might look at the – and I knew it was Charlie's project, but they didn't yeah. say that. And they said, we, we might look at this in the fall. And uh-huh. then in the fall, they, they contacted me. They said, we, we loved your, your proposal. We'd love to see your manuscript. Mm-hmm. And so I hadn't written anything, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, so that, uh, Manuscript. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I've got that. Hang on one second. Feverishly typing, feverishly yeah. typing. So then I, I wrote – the book in about seven weeks. Wow. It was all I did. Uh, you know, I'd been thinking about this and writing and blogging for a long time. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it was already in there. Like in my head, I just had to you know, write it in a way that was compelling and, and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they approved it and it got published. So it's been really exciting. Are any of the questions that you answer light? 
Like sometimes I think when we have these discussions of LGBTQ stuff, it's so serious and so heavy. Do you guys address any of sort of the lighter things? Uh, I mean, it's all pretty deep. I don't know. What does it say on the back? Because all the questions are <laughs> listed on the back. Um, you know, why do you talk about your orientation at church? That's not super heavy, but, but I mean, a lot of the questions are like, what do you do when church hurts? Mm-hmm. So they're all, they're all pretty deep. deep. Yeah. Very yeah. deep. Like I, I, one of the regrets that I have, I remember talking to someone, uh, very early on, um, in sort of my, uh, experience of being an ally or an advocate. And I remember when they, they, <laughs> They let me know that they were gay. And and later on, I made the most awkward of situations where I was like, so, I mean, I'm not interested, but am I attractive? And I just <laughs> kick myself that I asked that question. But I know that I'm not alone because, mm-hmm. you know, this individual is like, why do people ask me that? I'm not, you know, if you were, it, it just doesn't even make sense. But I so embarrassed about something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So never any light questions like that, huh? Uh, I mean, not, not not in the book, but I mean, I get a lot of light questions. But no, and the the book is fairly hard hitting. <laughs> and the, the and the podcast not very light either. Uh, you know, some of the questions are like one of the light questions is like, where are all the lesbians? You know, uh-huh. we hear from a lot of gay men, but where where are the lesbians? You know, and that was a, a lighter question that, that we did. Um, but you know, we we address some some tough things like, sure. like 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 how can I be an ally while supporting church teachings? Right. And uh, you know, um, you know, like what does it mean to keep your covenants yeah uh those kinds of questions and like is there a place for me in the church uh some 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 really tough things and we have really honest vulnerable conversations i i appreciate that obviously i'm making a little bit light around it but knowing that you uh you guys are such a great resource to be able to do it and that the hurt or the pain or the turmoil or the trauma or all of that stuff is so deeply rooted and to have a resource where they can hear people like themselves talking it out and being able to come to some conclusions or come to resolutions i think it's really valuable yeah and i think the podcast is you know there's there's stuff for everyone in there yeah. uh, who's interested in this space but like when i'm talking i'm thinking about LGBTQ students at BYU in particular, because mm-hmm. those are the ones; those were the questions we got, and their their parents and family. Like that's who I'm talking to. And when I walk across campus, you know, once or twice a week, someone will stop me and say, "Are you Ben Shalati? Mm-hmm. Like, I listen to your podcast. It's so weird. I'm talking. Like, I feel like we're best friends, mm-hmm. and you don't know me." And they'll say, "You know, your like your story and Charlie's story and your podcast helped me come out to my parents. Like, help me know what to say." And those kinds of things are just so gratifying, just knowing that that we can help give people who who need them some resources. And I always tell them, "Stop by my office." by my office. Let's talk. I, I, wa- I want to hear your story. And my boss in the Anarchot office is, is so understanding that they are totally okay with, with students coming by to, to talk, even though that's not really part of my job description. Yeah. And, you know, I have probably, you know, anywhere from like four to a dozen come by my office every week. Wow. And it's it's absolutely wonderful. And and one of the one of the best things is, you know, they get to meet the Honor Code staff too and like get to know people who are there and just, you know, see it's not a scary place. There's someone like me that they, they can come talk to. They can, they can talk to my boss and, and and um, yeah, that, that's that been really gratifying. Humbling probably to know that in, in some cases and for some of these students that you are a literal lifeline. Yeah. And and I, I don't take that lightly. Yeah. You know, I, I want to be available to people who need me. Uh, I, I often describe myself as, as a gay Mary Poppins, <laughs> you know, like, like someone's in crisis and I, I swoop in, I help them and then they're fine and they run off without saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these people just like pop into my life briefly and then they get to a better place and then they leave, which honestly, like I couldn't be friends with all these people. Like there's yeah. just no way. Sometimes people are like, can I just be your friend? I'm like, honestly, probably not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I'm happy to talk to you and, and you've already got friends and like, you know, as you get more comfortable, like, like they'll 
be your support system. Yeah. And you know, you know, straight people often ask me like, like, what supports there for LGBTQ people in the church? And I say, you, like, you were the support. Mm-hmm. Like, you were the one that's there to support them. Like, they don't need a website. Yeah. Like, they don't need a pamphlet. They need you. Are things like that helpful? Definitely. You know, I, I think that uh, for someone who's who's in the closet and the, the, the title for the podcast, Questions from the Closet, I, I was trying to figure out what to call the podcast. I was like, well, I want it to be for people who are like in the closet, but they have all these questions. And I was like, oh, my gosh, questions from the closet. Um, <laughs> I'm a marketing genius. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, for someone who's not ready to have the conversation, I think, you know, a podcast is amazing. Mm-hmm. Or someone who's just trying to learn a website can be amazing. But that's just the initial part. Mm-hmm. And for most people, as they get to a place where they're comfortable talking and sharing, you know, they don't need a website anymore. Mm-hmm. They don't need a podcast. They need the people in their lives to, to be kind and understanding. Yeah, yeah. What's coming to my mind at this point is the idea of mourning with those that mourn. And not that there is mourning around this, but I think I extrapolate that out to be like talking with those that need to be talked with and, mm-hmm. and listening to those who need to be listened to and, you know, comforting those that stand in need of comfort. Like I kind of uh, envision all of that around that scripture. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I wouldn't say that like I'm mourning the fact that I'm gay. Right. Like, like I don't struggle with same-sex attraction. Like I struggle with people struggling with my same-sex attraction. Right. And, but, you know, I'm not living the life I thought I would have. Like mm. I don't have a spouse or biological children. And, and you know, th- there, there's mourning that comes with, with, with like mourning the loss of life, the life you thought you'd have. And so I, as I've gotten to know people, you know, we're not just LGBTQ people, everyone's life has a large major of sadness and disappointment in it. Like mm-hmm. everyone's life has some kind of like, like, difficult thing or sure. tragedy and and you're lucky if you just have one for crying yeah, out loud. exactly <laughs> yeah. and and so all like in in some way everyone's mourning mm-hmm. and you know everyone has a burden that needs to be car- carried and you know my 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 burden and my mourning aren't that i'm that that because my aren't my orientation mm-hmm. uh but there's there's still tough things that happen as a result of it and how people treat me I noticed that you didn't answer the question, where are the lesbians? So I'm not going <laughs> to let you go with that. How come it is that we seem to have the discussion more around gay men than lesbian women within the church? Yeah, I mean, I think just in society in general, men just naturally have louder voices. And mm. so I, I think I think that's that's part of it. But also, you know, in the church, we talk about like men's sexuality a lot and uh, when they're youth, but we don't really like we don't uh, we assume that women don't have sexuality Mm -hmm. like we don't really address that like we don't talk to them about pornography like we do with the guys and so a lot of uh uh, teen women just aren't thinking about Hmm. thinking about this stuff as much as the men are uh also you know when i was when i was in my 20s and and dating everyone assumed that it was my job that i got married Mm -hmm. and so there's all this focus and pressure on me getting married but the women don't have that same pressure to to be the pursuers and so if they don't get married then oh well the guys just aren't smart enough like Mm -hmm. if they if they could see how beautiful and wonderful you are and so i I think that that women are uh, in our society are kind of put into the passenger seat instead of the driver's seat and therefore their sexuality is kind of pushed to the side um and so i I think that that it's easier for them to hide than it is for the for the men to hide Uh, i've also met a number of of women who are married to men who have told me that you know that they're gay but they never told their husbands Mm. there have been one or two instances where i was one of the first people that they told that they were gay and their husband didn't even know wow and so i I think that women historically have just been able to 
to to hide a little more and and uh, so I, th- I think that's probably part of it as well. I appreciate that my question was a joke and that you're so educated and versed in all of this <laughs> that you're able to be like, I see your question. I'll go ahead and answer that in a really thought provoking and in depth way where I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, that mm-hmm. that that all makes sense. Is it is it changing? What's the future like? Do you feel like we've talked about the April uh, 21 conference where certainly the focus has been greater on uh, single individuals, whether they be widowed or divorced, uh, gay, um, straight, whatever. Is it is the situation, situation is not the word I want to use, is the, um, does it just keep getting better? That's what I hope. That's my hope, <laughs> it, that it just gets keeps getting better for everyone within the church, that they feel more at home, more loved, more comforted. Yeah. You know, from, from my vantage point, sometimes we take two steps forward and one step back, mm-hmm. but I see a definite forward progression. You know, from the October 2020 General Conference, you know, President Oaks talked about the importance of getting to know one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sister Sharon Eubank said that, you know, the, the change we seek in the world won't come as much through ad- advocacy as it is through actively getting to know one another. Like there was this big push I saw in that conference, like really getting to know one another. And so I think as we really get to know one another's hearts and minds, which is how we build Zion, you know, as we build Zion by getting to know one another, things are just going to continue getting better and better with, you know, occasional steps back. You talk about the steps back, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, you know, there's the the policy, the November policy of a few years ago, wherein um, children of LGBTQ folks couldn't be baptized. And, and then I think two or three years later, it was sort of rescinded like, hey, that whole thing, forget about that. What was your... What was your reaction when it was issued and when it was repealed? Uh, well, you should read the book because I have a whole chapter about it. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, it was tough. Yeah. You know, when it, when it first came out. How the, could it not be, right? Yeah. And, and what was hard was I had just started the support. Like I had just come out like earlier that year. And I just started a support group for LGBTQ members in Tucson, and and so when it like when it first came out, like we, it didn't come from the church, like it was leaked. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, there's no way this is true. Like right. this this is insane. And then when it was true, I was like, how can this be? Mm-hmm. And like my my initial thought was they don't want me like church leaders don't want people like me in the church mm. and that was incredibly painful and then I started getting text messages and Facebook messages and emails and phone calls from friends who didn't know I was struggling just saying like Ben we love you like we claim you like you belong here and so I thought well this is the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, Jesus wants me in this church and the Latter-day Saints I know they want me in this church mm-hmm. I can move forward um, and there was a lot of praying and pondering and and fasting to try and figure this all out and it, it just never. S- I, I was never settled about, like it never felt right in my mind or in my heart. And I just, I knew it wasn't going to last. Like I just, I never felt like it, it just never s- sat, sat well with me. And then when it changed, like there was no lead up to it. It just like was suddenly gone. And I didn't really, I wasn't prepared for that. Mm. And it was like the scab was ripped off. And like, I just like felt all this pain again. Hmm. Um, that it ever happened to begin with. And I, I was finishing up my, my master's in social work at BYU. And, and so all, all my colleagues knew I was gay and, and they just like said all these like super kind things to me and just like hugged me and like said how much I taught them. And, and like, once again, like that night as I was writing my journal, I just started sobbing. I was like, the people that know me, like want me here and they've always wanted me here. And, and so, um, it it was, it was a tough thing, but it, it was, it was a real opportunity for the people in my life that cared about me to show we love you, we care about you, you belong. It could be that someone listening to this hasn't been as fortunate in their experience um, being able to be connected to people who would let them feel loved, let them feel welcomed. And so I would hope that they would use uh, either your book as a resource, resource, a walk in my shoes, uh, your podcast, um, Questions from the Closet, or just being able to reach out to you if they feel like there's no one that cares about them in the way. How can people reach out to you if they just want to 
want to be able to talk or they have concerns or whatever. Yeah. So I, I'm happy to chat. I would say for the most part, people like the most important person to talk to is someone you already know. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I, I can be a, a fine resource, but I'm just some stranger. <laughs> um, but you can you can email me at questions from the clo- or it's questions from the closet at gmail.com. Uh, if you're a BYU student, just come to my office uh, in the Wilkinson Center. Like just come by and, and say hello. Like that's totally fine. The secretaries know about that. It happens all the time. Um, but I, I'm happy to, to chat and hear someone's story. But I think the most important person in your life isn't going to be me, but the, the people you already know and care about. And if you're having a tough time, yeah, come by. I'll, I'll be your Mary Poppins. And then once <laughs> once you get to a better place, uh, you can just run off and fly your kite. <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> I love that example. There's three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I'll ask those questions of you now. The first question is, is do you have a calling? And if so, what is it? I do have a calling. I am a high counselor in my stake. If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Okay. I have always wanted to be a Sunday school teacher and teach gospel doctrine, Mm -hmm. and they have never called me to do it. And Mm. I am very good at teaching lessons. If if you do say so yourself. (laughs) I've I've been an Elder's Corp teacher like four times, and I would just love to be a gospel doctrine teacher for the rest of my life. Which uh, which subject of the gospel doctrine? Are you Old Testament? Are you New Testament? I I love the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants and the New Testament. Old Testament is weird and crazy. (laughs) (laughs) The the final question we ask and ask that you interpret it however you will, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? Yeah, Uh, I would say my favorite part of my faith is something that I've chosen. Hmm. You know, my my faith isn't, you know, I like growing up in the Seattle area, even though my, my, my parents and my siblings are members of the church, like most of my family isn't. And most of the people I knew weren't. And then, you know, when I came out and uh, as I was trying to figure out what my future in the church looked like, it wouldn't have been that hard for me, like, culturally to, to step away and, like, have a fine life, you know, outside of the church. Uh, but in the end, that wasn't what I wanted. Yeah. And so for me, you know, my, my faith is something that I've chosen and I, that I choose regularly uh, because it's not always easy to, to be in my position. And so I think that's my favorite part of my faith, that I, I use my agency to choose it. Well, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Brother Brent, Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast, and BigMikesProducts.com will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat On the back row, we really gotta go On the Culture Hall Show